0: Welcome to Bite Into It. It is our last show for the year tonight. I'm joined by Laura Summers. Hey there. And Mr Dan Salmon. Good evening. Great to have you here. I'm Vanessa Taholka. Uh, Thanks for tuning in this evening. We're glad to have you with us on this final show. We hope to leave you with a whole lot of optimism about the technology space coming into the holidays. Um, Before we maybe get to some of that optimism, um, actually I'll give you a bit of a flag of what that might look like. We are going to get to know the new Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Ethics at the University of Melbourne. It's um, a wonderful initiative and uh, we look forward to sharing more information about it. So what's happening in news this week, Laura?
1: Um, Well, there was a little bit of a... um public falling out for TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, They're everybody's new favorite social media platform. If you haven't seen them, they do these funny little short videos, usually to popular snippets from music. It's what all the young kids are on. If your parents haven't heard of it, you know it's cool. Um, But they admitted to suppressing um, creators who... They were worried might be bullying targets, so creators who um, would be potentially from LGBTQ communities or who um, they were worried would be fat shamed or otherwise bullied, they admitted that they were like writing algorithms to like actively suppress the popularity of that content in order to prevent them from being bullied so in some cases that meant them not getting sent out to other channels or regions outside of their local region or you know outside the country and and that's kind of sad when you think about the importance of hearing diverse voices in media creation <laughs> it's completely shocking isn't yeah, it, it's, it is. it's
0: like a failure to think through the ramifications of this decision it
1: really is and you just think oh come on you know like it's 2019 this, this is like not this is inexcusable
0: yeah we're going to make sure you're not bullied by completely deplatforming platforming you
1: exactly and also not letting you know and they were only found out and then had to admit to having done it awkward very awkward awkward for tiktok indeed
0: all right something to watch there
1: Mm. hey um
0: in australian specific news our government has unveiled a new online safety law to force the tech sector to step up uh the communications minister paul fletcher has said that um platforms need to take responsibility for the spread of harmful material on their platforms um and he has spoken at length about this at a meeting with the National Press Club um, just today. So, yeah. any any
1: thoughts about what that might be responding to specifically, Vanessa?
0: Well, I think they're talking about, say, um, the Christchurch massacre, sort of the spread of that sort of. Um, Propaganda, mm. and um, also the spread of uh, disinformation, misinformation around political campaigns. Um, but p- they've particularly called out glorification of violence, so that that's what lends us to believe that a lot of this has been inspired by the the awful effects of the Christchurch massacre. Yeah. Um, well worth listening back to Dylan and Carly's interview of Jeff Sparrow, um, with uh, his very um, great insights into. Online hate and the spread of it, and um, and particularly around the that that tragedy, um, worth mm-hmm. having a look at. So, look, draft proposals for the new online safety act um, are going to be released soon. They uh, they're saying that they could force companies to remove harmful content within 24 hours rather than the current 48 hours. Um, they're talking about an increase in child's protection. Against cyber bullying, which is quite uncontroversial, but it really depends on how they enact that. As we've heard, sometimes attempts to circumvent bullying are misguided.
1: Yes. Mm. In the,
0: in the in their strategies. Yeah. Um, they're also yeah seeking to improve ways to seek removal of online abuse mm. and make harmful materials harder to find on search engines. So I, it's very interesting to see them put the pressure on in this way. Um,
1: yeah, it, so it's just the The hard, devil's going to yeah. be in the detail. I was going to say, like, it's just the hard problem of policing free speech. That's yeah. not difficult at all, right? Easy yeah. to do. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We do it all yeah. the time. yeah, yeah. 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 We- um, and, and and sorry, like, I'll turn off my facetious <laughs> tap. It's off. Um, there's some interesting big global news. Dan, do you want to tell us about what's happening at Google?
2: Well, yeah. No, this is this is kind of huge. So um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who founded Google all those years ago in 1998, have uh, said that they are stepping down um, as uh, heads of the now parent company of Google Alphabet. Um, they will remain employees at Alphabet. They'll keep their seats on the board and they'll still keep their shares in the company, but they're not going to be overseeing um, any of the day-to-day activities. They're passing it on to um, the current Google CEOs uh, Sundar Pichai, apologies if I didn't mispronounce that. Um, he will be, uh, in, quote, executive responsible and accountable for leading Google and managing Alphabet's investment in our portfolio of other bits. Um, they, they say that they're going to be deeply committed to Google and Alphabet in the long term and remain involved as board members. Um and I, I'm not sure whether that's going to be work work as well for Google as they're hoping. I was reading an interesting article uh, in The Economist uh, yesterday that basically said that when there's been a succession in one of these gigantic tech companies, and they, they uh, cited Microsoft and Apple, and they, they've said that those companies prospered partly because their founders or their families did not retain voting control after they left the scene. So um, their argument is that um, Paige and Brin should just Relinquish all their voting rights and gradually sell off their shares, and let you know Google answer its questions in the, with some new thinking from the beginning. I don't know what you guys think about that.
0: I think it's very unsurprising that this move is, has come now, particularly after they were both requested to front um, Congress in the States and, and talk about uh, what, their, what their businesses were doing um, and how they were handling um, challenging issues like misinformation on their platforms and whether they had any responsibility for the content on their platforms. And one of them didn't rock up and the other who did seemed really uncomfortable in those hearings. It's not an area which um, they like to act in and that's increasingly what the responsibilities of, you know, CEOs and um were for, you know, the heads of Alphabet. So mm. when you have a very technical uh set of co founders, I think there's a lot of arguments for moving them um out of the business making decisions and, and keeping them on the technical side. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage to balance that, Laura. Do you have any any thoughts about that as well?
1: Um well Kara Swisher, who you all know I'm obsessed with, um, our tech journalist favorite, uh, basically said something which I thought was pretty much bang on, that this is actually not that surprising a deal. And they'd already been kind of phasing themselves out or getting phased out, depending on what you think the situation is, um, that in fact, uh, Sergey had actually, um, not Sergey, sorry, um, Sundar had been uh, in control of the two big products, Google and YouTube, for already quite some time and doing most of the top level decision making. So this is just kind of the logical conclusion of that process. Mm. um and yeah i agree like if they're not comfortable getting in front of congress if they're not comfortable like fronting these ethical questions um mm. and certainly like taking control of the overall direction of the company it makes sense that that you like sort of consolidate that on one front man
0: and i would condition you know my statements on the on the basis that look sundar is actually an incredible public speaker and well capable of doing a lot of these things precisely but is it his preferred operating you know model probably no you know and then yeah. sergey much less comfortable <laughs>
1: Exactly. So mm. yeah, look, I, I, not surprising. Definitely end of an era for those of us who remember Google from back in the days when they were, you know, the misspelling of Google. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is actually a pretty big deal. I feel like it's like Ben and Jerry's founders retiring. It's like you know, end of yeah, an era. Yeah, it's
0: significant. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but yeah, look, we'll we'll follow with interest what happens with Google in the future.
0: All right. Well, we really want to hear more about the newly launched law and computer science. Um, uh, I guess, Centre for um, AI and Digital Ethics coming up after the breaks. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You are buy into it. We have Mr Dan Salmon. We've got Laura Summers. I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for tuning in. Tonight we also have a very special pair of guests from Melbourne University. From the Melbourne Law School, Professor Jeannie Patterson and from the School of Computing and Information Systems, Associate Professor Tim Miller. Welcome to studio. Thank you. Together... They are contributing expertise to the new Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Ethics at the University of Melbourne to be officially launched in March next year. We're really grateful to have you in ahead of that to help uh, set up for our audience what is you know, the mission behind your new centre?
3: We're going to look at each other well. (laughs) All night. The mission behind our new centre is that you just can't get away from AI applications, automatic decision-making and digital technology now. And it's really important that we think about the ethical applications of that technology and also about the law that might control that technology. But, of course, lawyers aren't very technical, so we can't do that without philosophers and, of course, computer scientists.
0: It's very heartening to us. Um, We have uh, together been pitching in in the show for, you know, about eight years, even though the show is about, you know, 27, 28 years old now. And when we started off with our little tenure here, mostly we'd hear news stories from academics, um, from the engineering faculties or from the computing faculties. And we'd always end up asking ourselves questions about the law, qualifying that we weren't lawyers and saying we really weren't equipped to answer questions in that space. We've seen that change in our time here and you know, we're starting to hear so many more stories emerge from the social sciences, from politics, history, um, philosophy and, um, and very, very grateful to have news coming from the law. Um, how much appetite are you getting within the university campuses from, say, uh, faculties of computing uh, to to get the law faculty to help them answer some of the questions in their spaces,
4: yeah, uh, th- quite a bit. Re- more recently, we see it quite a bit, and I mean, I should notice it's also the faculty of arts that that are members uh, in this, so it's it's a, it's a three faculty uh, program, and yeah, quite a bit. So we have a you know a small group of people, maybe twelve to fifteen academics plus postdocs who are interested in ethic applications of technology and uh, completely aware of the fact that they don't have the skills in order to do this themselves and that we do need a much wider, uh, much wider variety. And this, this came out of actually, the whole centre came out of um, several different groups around the university, multidisciplinary groups applying for smaller inif- initiatives through our chancellery and the pro-vice-chancellor rejecting us all and saying, no, no, you need to do something bigger. This is a mm. bigger problem and you should do something bigger um, than that.
1: Um, I came across a paper a couple days ago actually that was talking about the kind of mismatch between legal concepts of justice and the way those same terms are often applied in the research and I'm curious so for example um, the concept of affirmative action being like antithetical to quotas um, as it's actually implemented in law but then the way that it might be implemented in a machine learning fairness test could potentially feel like or look like a quota so um, yeah I'm curious to know how are you tackling this question of language and vocabulary and sort of making normal terms that people from both sides can speak to no, knowing that it's coming obviously but yeah is that is that on your mind i guess well
4: damn it that paper's on my reading list i didn't read it before i came in I pipped you at the post yeah, it was only two days ago so I sorry you might want to comment Jean. Uh,
3: well I, I i have read a bit of that paper uh because it's something i've been thinking about with some of my colleagues for a while uh which is just um a lot of the work we're going to be doing is just bridging conversations uh so i think that perhaps that i wouldn't want to speak for or computer scientists, some computer scientists maybe think that you can take you can tweak you can tweak the algorithm and take perhaps gender out of the um, of the selecting of the selecting decision and you've solved the problem where of course those in the humanities and social sciences would think a lot more about associated characteristics. Um, and indirect forms of discrimination as a way of solving those problems. So I think there's some interesting uh, conversations to happen, perhaps in the wider world, uh, with, Mm. with what we're doing.
0: So an issue we are increasingly hearing people grapple with is the idea of black box algorithms, us actually not being able to unpick how the decisions are being made behind the scenes and there being valid reasons why algorithms need to be secret, even if um, it it might be partly because they're teaching themselves and we don't know the algorithm or it might be because that's protected, you know, business IP and so there's other valid reasons why that's not out there. Um, How far are we in developing strategies to kind of address those issues of transparency Transparency And, you know, I guess corporate responsibility tying into that a lot.
4: Yeah, it depends on on what you mean, right? So you can definitely have a black box, but give very good information as to why it made a decision. So if you, for example, give some personal information and ask something to give a decision and and it turns you down, let's say, for example, you go for a a loan, um, you could ask, well, um, what would I have to do differently to get a loan next time? And it might be able to say, well, you need more income and you need to cancel one of your credit cards. Uh, and that offers insight into what the decision making is, but you don't have to reveal your algorithm or your data sources or anything like this. Okay, but maybe that's not a satisfactory answer for regulators who might want to crack into the black box a little bit further. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on on the particular application, how high stakes it is. I know that those kind of, those kind of what I would say explanations are not real great for very high-stakes decisions. A doctor's not going to make a decision on, on the back of something. And we're
0: something. seeing almost exactly that scenario playing out with the Apple credit card at the moment, which is a yeah. Goldman Sachs-backed mm. product that yeah. people have not been able to get acceptable answers mm. around. And that's in a highly regulated industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, are our highly regulated um, industries uh, moving fast enough to, to adapt
3: Shall I answer that one? Yes, Laura. Um, Using the same same answer. Well, I guess guess, um, the point is our industries are moving very quickly. So as you would be aware, we have this new thing called the consumer data right, which is coming to fruition first in the banking industry. So increasingly, we're going to have automated and algorithmic decisions about what your limit is on your credit card and whether you can get a home loan. Um, So understanding how we think about... Those decisions is really important. And the first step is actually for regulators to talk to people with expertise like Tim, because we can make up all the rules we like, but if they're not technically possible, uh, then they're pretty useless. And so the counterfactual explanation in the financial sector has actually gained quite a bit of um, credibility as a way of checking or evaluating the types of decisions that are made by an. And automated process um, and there's two sides for that because in Australia unlike other countries we're not just concerned about who gets the loan we're also concerned that people don't get loans they can't afford mm. uh, so we have quite a rich regulatory regime there and in that context it may be the counterfactual example is quite useful because we have a framework for understanding the types of uh, checks and balances should be made on lending decisions and in particular, not lending people too much.
1: Yeah, the the sort of um, burden of, of care on both sides of the decision, and not assuming that the positive answer is necessarily an unadulterated good, is is a good point. Um, Tim, for those listeners who may not be familiar with this concept, do you want to just give us a quick ex- explanation of what a counterfactual model could be for a decision-making system?
4: Yeah, so a counterfactual model is a, it's counter to the fact, so it's something that doesn't exist. So in the case of let's let's go to the credit. Um, scoring thing it's uh the the way it's kind of formally defined is i have some attributes such as my income the loan amount these types of thing it's well show me the closest person the closest hypothetical person that looks the most like me that would have got the loan when i didn't or wouldn't have got the loan if i did or something like that so it looks a lot like me and it's able then i'm able to sort of take action in order to in the future get the decision i wanted
3: or identify when an um uh, illegitimate reason is used to make the decision as well. Mm.
1: Yeah, so if there's someone's had a decision and the only thing that's changed in that counterfactual example is something protected like race or gender, mm-hmm. then you know something's gone wrong with the algorithm. Or something
3: associated with race or gender. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
1: the proxy. Proxy, Proxy data points, is, is, it is more tricky. Um, actually, that's a really interesting question. How do you, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about like this idea of a sensitive attribute might be like mapped to data points that may not actually be that exactly, but can kind of reflect like how that, that sort of adds to the trickiness of these kinds of tests?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, it's just stuff that's correlated with race. So the, the first and most famous example was a system called Compass in the United States, which was used to... It wasn't meant to do this originally, but it was used to decide whether people should receive um, parole. And it used attributes such as who your friends' networks were, what high school you went to, what your postcode was. Not racial attributes, didn't use race, but just it happens that high crime areas happen to also be areas where black people lived a lot and where poor schools were and all these types of things. So it just just stuff that comes in and the the other really great example of Facebook's um, CV scanning algorithm that effectively never shortlisted females for software engineering positions mm. you know it was it turned out it was spotting things like if they volunteered for the women in computer science society that was a bad thing you know to, to get shortlisted but there was no gender written on there
1: yeah. <laughs> um- I heard an example of um, a, a delivery service that was exploring how to expand into new um, neighborhoods, and it it had basically classified some of the neighborhoods as being like never likely to be um, never likely to be particularly profitable for them. But then this like raises this deeper question: like if you're offering a service that may be seen as almost like a utility, like you mm-hmm. know if it's Amazon or something like Google or Facebook, and you then choose not to expand into specific neighborhoods, maybe because they're poor, and maybe that means that a lot of black people. People live there, or people of color, or other people who might be like experiencing bias. Um, does that does do you bear bear a corporate responsibility? Um, and maybe that's a good kickoff to you, Jeannie, about like how this work kind of ties into your broader your broader work. Like how how did you come here, and like what makes you interested in this question of like algorithmic justice?
3: Uh, well, I. The interest in algorithmic justice or algorithmic equity comes from probably my work as a consumer protection lawyer and also my role in the Melbourne Social Equity Institute, which are very both of those fields of study are very interested in the equity um, in the distribution of goods and services, and indeed fields of study. So it's a commitment to thinking about people that actually aren't don't may not have voices or may not be participants in um, academic studies. I think that's how my interest in the equity piece came about um, and why why did I put in this grant application to do more work in the area of AI digital equity? Uh, well, I think it's because those groups of people, the people who have the least voice, are usually the people who are first the... Uh, uh, who were birthed, who first experimented on by new technologies and we're all aware of the fact that you know people on social security have been subject to robo-debt and in the US there's suggestions that a lot of decisions about funding, childcare um, support, child protection um, are first targeted on people who have mm. the least opportunity to argue back I think.
0: Yeah. So if we bring that up strategically to um, the uh, areas, the four themes that your centre is focused on, we have fairness and accountability and governance and auditing and transparency and consent and data privacy, all with the automated decision-making kind of lens applied there. Were those four themes brought out in order to try and capture everything that was sort of on your radar or were they the ones that you decided were the priorities?
4: So, I mean, they're not everything. There are the ethical issues around. So, I mean, one that you could just talk about is machine learning is uh, a lot of the more modern machine learning is in, is incredibly energy intensive. And it doesn't matter now because there's not many companies using that amount of energy, but the, if you believe the hype, there will be. Uh, but we just say, well, that's not a very multidisciplinary uh, field to study. Whereas these other ones, We're bringing together more this was more of a bottom-up process of what were people at Melbourne already doing that we could start off with as pillar projects Um, now that wouldn't mean we wouldn't advance to other things in two years but this was where we already had expertise scattered around the university that's how we we chose those.
0: Fantastic and when we start getting into things like consent and data privacy and automated decision making that's incredibly topical because we're Consistently being asked to give away more and more of our information, not just to companies but also to government, um, is. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about like who within your centre is is going to be working on these things in terms of like what sort of faculties are, are coming together to discuss those sort of issues? Uh,
3: well, I think I think the the fact. I think the answer is that we're interested, that all of us are interested in all of the questions. We have a very energetic uh, team, actually, who are excited or passionate about all of these issues. Uh, But the aim is that we want to... We can see that there's people doing work across the university that tap into a number of these issues. For example, one of our colleagues, uh, Reva, uh, does a lot of work on the ethics of um, using uh, perhaps... Automation, but also digital technologies to provide healthcare, and the question about, you know, how do we think about that, and how do we think whether that actually improves health outcomes? Because sometimes uh, technology is used as an excuse to do things more cheaply, as opposed to do things better. Uh, So, so the projects were chosen by our people, Mm. and I think the themes are overlapping. Yeah, Uh, but but the special. I think they all come in at all different directions. You can see in that healthcare one, there are issues of consent, there's all issues of bias, there's issues of accountability. Um, so those, this is
0: exciting because mm. it sounds like we're going to see outcomes in a range of niche projects yeah. you know that fit and maybe the cross to over be in these quite, yeah. The aim is
3: to be quite applied in what we're doing. It's yeah. easy to come in. You talked about social uh, corporate social responsibility mm. earlier. We know that a lot of companies are coming up with codes of ethics Uh, and it's great it's great to have codes of ethics there's a number of people who've mapped the codes of ethics that are applicable in this area and there are many many standards yes Uh, and that's great too but unless we work out how they can be applied and what they mean in real situations they're not that they're just words
0: yeah and I think that the next step down from some of these codes of ethics is the practitioners we're talking to are talking about we don't always know what the best practices are in these mm. fields. Is that something that we might hope to get um, some insights into from this centre?
4: Absolutely, that's, that's the main aim of the centre is not more principles, there's mm. enough principles uh, and they're, they're, as Jeannie says, they're good to have but they're not useful for people to make day-to-day or everyday decisions or decisions about products and services and so we're looking to be, um, reason, we're looking to, to apply these in, in, in applied context And also we're trying to be quite Australian-centric in that and just that we can't compete with the Turing Institute and this $500 million thing at MIT on these spaces, but they're not going to be studying so heavily Australian rural mental health, online mental health, for example, uh, and that's a good good problem. But we will learn things that we can generalise about those Australian-centric
0: That just sounds so constructive to me because um, so much of the material that's out there already uh, doesn't always apply and it might be for really interesting reasons, like we've got a really different geography to deal with in Australia... And that brings up different challenges. We've got different infrastructure challenges. The ways, yeah, and different cultural mores, you know, is a a really significant part as well.
4: Yeah, a different legal
0: system. Yes.
1: And even to the point of um, different sort of cultural values, like I know, Tim, you did some um, excellent research on this question of like what constitutes an explanation Mm -hmm. and the difference between people's sort of like experience of an explanation and maybe like a technical sort of thorough explanation. Um, so I'm curious to, to hear if you're thinking about how to um, explore what constitutes an Australian acceptable explanation. And do you think there's something different that might not be acceptable in the US, for instance, or mm. elsewhere in the world?
4: Yeah, I mean, what? so one of the things my, my PhD student, Henrietta Lyons, is looking at right now is contestability. So how can you contest a decision and what does an explanation look like when you contest, let's say, a government decision? She's focusing on government decision-making there. Mm. And that does look um, somewhat Australian-centric, it's going to look different for Australia. But we will learn things that will apply to people with similar legal systems, um, but it's it's Australian-specific.
0: So as well as having very, um, I guess, research that's more on the theoretical side, you know, the conceptual side, would we potentially expect to see... Um, the sort of research that comes out which would be a collaboration between you know uh, computing and law faculties on something like a bot to contest 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 things like you know contest legal sort of things because we've seen a lot of legal bots pop up around the world you know are you looking at those sort of I guess tactical kind of
1: Outcomes? A fairness bot, Vanessa? Yeah, I'm just <laughs> saying. I immediately want it. Yes. Well, Tim, can you build it for Well, us? we actually
3: <laughs> quite like a privacy bot, in mm. fact. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. Have the bot that protects your privacy. Mm. And at Melbourne Law School, we actually have a program where we've got a lot of students that are actually creating apps and chatbots that are aimed at bridging some of the issues to do with access to justice. Um, and I think we'll be working with that program. But I guess the question we might be interested in is, and to come back to the point I made earlier, is why do we have to use bots to provide this sort of advice? Who are the people that get this advice? And is it really helpful for them? And moreover, if we did want to help these people, what would the bot actually look like? What would it do?
4: And so we have – we can't talk in too much detail. We have a, a potential project that we're, we're looking to fund now with the social enterprise that are building a chatbot for a marginalised community, but they're using a Google platform mm-hmm. and that data will go to Google and they're interested in, well, what's our responsibility yeah. for keeping this data
3: private? And what does consent look like when you're dealing with people that perhaps don't have a lot of choices, yeah. um, which we come up again and again, like yeah. – um, I think the truism that the children of Silicon Valley aren't allowed to use digital technology and they don't have any uh, home devices in their home. <laughs> or San Francisco being the first
1: like city to ban facial recognition. Yes. yes. Yeah.
3: yeah, we come back to the Australian focus there, yeah, don't we? Absolutely. That's, that's not our journey, but we need to start thinking about those sorts of questions and who gets to choose where this technology is deployed mm. um, and, and who gets to co-create it.
1: Um, Perhaps one one kind of like concluding question, like I'm so excited about this interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary approach. Um, How are you thinking about bringing in people from social sciences or arts faculty and law and computer science together to work together? What's that going to look like?
3: Uh, Well, we haven't got an arts person here today, but we have a philosopher on our steering committee, which is great. Who doesn't love a moral philosopher? (laughs) Uh, And I think our first year we'll be running a lot of workshops and get-togethers to try and get people to talk to each other because as I think you started with, sometimes the language is different. The other exciting thing that we're doing, that the centre is doing, is we'll be teaching a subject next year for um, university students. First-year students will be able to take it if they want, which is actually on AI. Uh, ethics and law so one way we're bridging that multidisciplinary divide that disciplinary divide is starting with students is is to work with students as as well as our academic colleagues yeah And, and it's important
4: to note I mean we we put in different funding sources they were already multidisciplinary. we have people in computer science working with people in law i work with people in social psychology in social and cognitive psychology that's happening it's just we want we want to build those networks stronger and that's that's how do we do that that's our job uh mm. from from march i mean already we,
3: we're thinking very hard about this and we've got some great artworks as well we'd like to see more (laughs) art in the space
0: (laughs) oh it's so important when we're in a in a field that's ripe with misinformation and we're always trying to figure out how can we communicate differently and better and yeah it really is going to take multidisciplinary solutions um look it's incredibly exciting to be hearing about um the the new center for ai and digital ethics if you missed that do check it out at law.unimelb.edu.au slash centers slash c-a-i-d-e or Cade. Um, it's launching in March. Well worth finding out more about. If I was a student, I'd be super excited about enrolling in these things. Where were they when I was studying computing? <laughs> um, I, Professor... fear
4: if, I fear if you had them when we were studying that we we might not exist this afternoon. Oh, no, might, no might... don't be like that. Yeah.
0: Too. We'd like to say a big thank you to Professor Jeannie Patterson and Associate Professor Tim Miller from Melbourne University. Thanks for being with us. Thanks very much. Pleasure.
4: Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
0: On Triple R, you're with Bite Into It for our last show for the year. We have Dan Sam and Laura Summers and I'm Vanessa DeHolker. Thanks for listening. I hope it's still nice and balmy out there. It's been getting chilly too quickly these days. Hopefully some will catch up with us soon. So, um, Laura, on the Breakfasters end of year broadcast, the OB on Friday, I have been asked to talk about dating apps because it's coming into summer, people are feeling frisky... But what have you got for me in this space?
1: Well, look, we, we we know that people love to make a new dating app, and that's always like a field of interest. Um, but something that's come out recently is that one of the projects that the now late Jeffrey Epstein um, funded from the renowned Harvard Medical School geneticist George Church is in fact a new breed of dating app. And it is extremely concerned with Wait for it. Genetic purity. (laughs) Oh. And it is exactly as terrible as it sounds. It is particularly concerned in preventing matches, which could result in one of 7,000 identified diseases and genetic problems, Um, and therefore will not match you with anyone So you're obviously required to take a full-spectrum DNA test in order to, like, participate in this dating app, which is immediately, I don't know about you, but, like, barrier to entry seems a little high. I tend (laughs) to be, like... I'm not
2: giving them my DNA.
1: Yeah, right, what could go wrong? And then they tell you that they will not show you who you were chosen not to be matched with based on this genetic screening. So, yes, let's be clear, this is pure eugenics, and it's perhaps unsurprising coming from the guy who wanted to spread his seed across the human race jeffrey epstein being like yeah. famous for having essentially a harem of young women and trying to impregnate as many of them as possible yeah dan made a like creepy shrug face and yeah, like that's nah. pretty much my feeling about even this whole- just
0: hearing the word purity next to um genetics is horrifying yes. as if that concept even exists you know it is shocking
1: Yeah. So basically, we don't know what this app is going to be called or if it will see the light of day. Hopefully not. Um, But if it does, make sure you steer clear of that one. Maybe try Bumble instead.
0: (laughs) I'll give you a range of alternatives
1: yeah, and Vanessa, tell you the Vanessa, good news on Friday. Vanessa will see you with like a bunch of much better alternatives. <laughs> Absolutely. I did see you see it in an ironic sense. <laughs> well, I'm trying not to be grossed
0: out over here, but uh, you know, it's taking a lot of willpower.
1: I don't blame you. Hey, we
0: had a fantastic chat about artificial intelligence just a moment ago and you surfaced something very interesting online recently. Laura, tell us about the anatomy of an AI system.
1: Yeah, so this is a beautiful piece of research and also art that's come out of the AI Now Institute and was done by Kate Crawford um, in collaboration with an artist called Vladin Joler. Apologies if I mispronounce that. Um, and it's available online at anatomyof.ai. And it's essentially a really interesting, like from first principles look at how, what is needed in terms of an economic um capital and engine to make a piece of technology that would end up in your home like an amazon alexa um so they look at all of these attributes like um the mining and the raw rare earth materials that are needed to be pulled out of the earth to build this thing and they look at things like the rarity of those minerals Um, they explore sort of the human interaction aspect of it and like the ways in which we are given agency and then not given agency um, to interact with something that could potentially be listening to us 24-7 and possibly recording that data and possibly using it for purposes that aren't for our own benefit. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful diagram, and it's quite interesting because you can interpret it from top down or left to right. Um, and I'm going to get this wrong. One of them is, I think, um, systems of economic power, and from top down is time, I think, so from the beginning to the end, if I've interpreted that correctly. I love the
0: way it also takes you from, say, human operators through um, to them interfacing with all sorts of like domestic level infrastructure up to internet infrastructure, who's really providing the backbones of that, you know, Mm. talking about, you know, like Amazon and their AWS sort of platform and, and, um, you know, AVS
1: Mm. sort of ones. And they, each, each of these sections in this map is accompanied by um, a short essay. So the entire thing is comprised of 21 short essays that are kind of distinct little nuggets. It's actually really beautiful. It's like a series of cones. There's something very poetic about this, and I, I really love that because it sort of brings an artistic and poetic sense to this deeper problem. And to this question, we were talking before about like different modes of communicating systems problems. Here's a great example of a way to tackle that. Well, I really
0: appreciate that this um, opens up understanding of an AI to uh, different sorts of learners. And if you are a more visual person, you know, you might want to dive into it in in certain ways. I think also some people need to see the connections between things to really, you know, start to understand even the individual piece that they might be focused on. Mm. Uh, It's nice to see something broken down in the sense of an anatomy when What's been more common these days have been ecosystems, which are very helpful as well. Um, but often we don't get down to this level of detail. As we're starting to use, you know, algorithms and machine learning to do more of the, the hard work for us, it becomes increasingly um, viable to hold a really complex set of information uh, in, uh, I guess, in your thinking sort of brain at the same time, you know, because you're using a virtual brain to do it. So it suddenly becomes really important to do this. We're at a point in time where we might actually achieve, you know, uh, supply chain, Uh, transparency on really complex sort of supply Mm -hmm. chains and this sort of anatomy is like a vital contributor to being able to solve those sort of complex problems yeah yeah
1: they even one of the essays speaks specifically to this problem of supply chain transparency and sort of speaks to some of the um, examples of technology supply chains that are you know really complex sort of branching tree networks, and they're almost impossible to map correctly um, to understand like the impact of every one of those suppliers or suppliers of suppliers, et cetera. Um, And I think that that is like, very much one of the challenges that our our cognitive space struggles like to have bandwidth to absorb but maybe is a good application of ml maybe that's one of the things we need to use ml for is to help us understand and come to grips with the impacts of these systems
0: we're in the middle of a climate emergency where people are talking about the the wicked problems the unintended consequences of of trying to fix one thing and then having knock-on effects in other areas it's only by harnessing um this sort of uh, ability to take on the the complexity which just let's face it our human brains aren't that great at doing that we will start to crack these problems when I'm radically optimistic that's what I kind of think
1: you mean it's not just one more dopamine hit
0: It's um, a very pretty diagram. I yeah, mean, there's, uh, oh. there's some dopamine hits here for sure.
1: Definitely, um, yeah, and they certainly they grapple very deeply with this question of like, you know, the reusability of technology and like the sort of de- design for consumption and and disposal as opposed to design for reuse and like re- recovering these rare earth minerals. So, I certainly think um, like, which you know like the question of like the life cycle of a piece of hardware and technology is like you know almost entirely unexamined and certainly never baked into a pricing point. So that that's something that I think. Is, is deeply entwined with climate change and with like our disposable culture and is something that we have to come up with alternate modes of grappling with and also thinking about designing alternate features.
0: So what do we know about who put this anatomy of an AI system together?
1: Oh, well, Kate Crawford is, um, she's one of the people who was well, um, w- sorry, well known, well recognized for being one of those um, AI, uh, sorry, Google, um walkout leaders so she was at google she was leading an ethics group there as well as being one of these co-founders of the ai now institute um and she's done a bunch of research she also did a really interesting research piece on the carbon cost of um, deep learning which tim referred to earlier in our chat but we didn't talk about the sort of details that came out of that
0: yes i mean Um, people have been gradually talking about carbon costs of say uh uh, cryptocurrencies and exactly. uh, deep learning and all these other intensive hardware. Yeah, like you know. requires
1: lots of boxes and lots of compute and lots of power.
0: Electricity, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So one of the, I think um, there was there were some stats on there that were actually like completely shocking, even to me, who I thought I was reasonably around this. So some of them were like the the power used to train one deep learning model that they examined was more than the lifetime carbon cost of fourteen cars. Um, which I don't know if that's surprising to you, but it really surprised me.
2: That's that's a lot.
1: Yeah, like the lifetime cost, not just like running it once, but yeah. like 14 cars. Is, yeah. it's, it's a reasonable amount. So, yeah. um, you know, that thing that Tim alluded to, which is like, you know, right now we only have a few companies running um, these scale of deep learning training processes. But if we expand that, we need to either get really serious about green energy really fast or come up with ways to make them less compute and less energy-intensive very fast. Mm. Otherwise, we're going to use our entire carbon budget up on deep learning, which is probably Mm. not that (laughs) important right now compared to every other technology.
0: Another parallel between this particular research piece and the interview we had earlier this evening... Um, is that Kate's collaborator, Vladin Jola, is a professor in the Academy of Arts at the University of Novi Sad and the founder of the SHARE Foundation, which is interested in research and data investigation lab for exploring different technical and social aspects of algorithmic transparency, digital labour exploitation, invisible infrastructures and technological black boxes. This is exactly the sort of pairing of disciplines to help understand the complexity mm. and um, start to build solutions. That so we're Tim talking and Jeannie,
1: about. we're throwing the gauntlet. This is the standard. You have to come up with. <laughs> I think that mm. I think they're uh, happy to happy to aim for the stars. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm teasing, but yeah, this is <laughs> this is this is absolutely the kind of outcome that I think is like bigger than any one discipline could imagine on their own, and that's why it's exciting.
0: Yeah. Triple R.
1: For the last little bit of bite into it for the
0: year, we have Laura Summers, we've got Dan Salmon, I'm Vanessa De Holker. Thanks for tuning in. It has been a very AI-focused discussion this evening. Um, it's it's super topical and we're really uh, consumed by the potential and the, and the risks in the space. Uh, an article has come out of China this week um, looking into artificial intelligence being used um in augmenting judges' decisions and verdicts. And uh, one of the examples that they have is that there's a chat app being used to help inform some of these decisions. Uh, so China's making all sorts of inroads into what they're calling cyber courts. Uh, maybe it sounds cooler when, they're, when that's translated. Um, but they're encouraging digitization to streamline case handling because, like many courts around the world, courts, uh, legal systems, they're just drowning in volume mm. uh, so I do
1: like that it's on WeChat which is China's answer mm. to everything every single thing like transaction chat all goes but yes in this case people um, in China can actually submit things like case file hearings and evidence exchange without actually appearing in court to try and reduce some of that yeah. like administrative load
2: and it is streamlining it to a, to a certain extent since March they've handled three million cases which I mean is a huge amount for any particular court and I mean it's possibly a drop in the ocean when you've got a country of nearly two billion people, but that's that's a lot of processing and a lot of um, decision-making by someone who is – or by a, a, an entity that is meant to be objective, I suppose. It, it it makes sense, but at the same time, a whole lot of law seems to be about the argument and to take that kind of aspect away from arguing a case, I'm not sure how – how well, I just don't trust I th- it. I think I there's,
0: they're still letting people – put facts in and people are still influencing at every stage of the process but uh, I think it's a little similar to some of the New York courts having recommendations engines it seems to come in that way and also enabling people to have video connections to um give their evidence and not physically be present so some of that stuff is just very logical it's like yes let's not make people geographically be present in the same area to get through their their legal woes um so it's it's really interesting um some of the cases being handled include online trade disputes copyright cases e-commerce product liability claims so we're not looking at a lot of criminal law here most of this is like white collar or um torts sort of
1: Stuff. Uh, Mm. Yeah, I saw a similar um, algorithmic judge being, uh, I think, piloted in a Tennessee court in the U.S., which was basically only looking at parking fines and like low priority infringements, but essentially um, offering people small fees and saying like, if you're happy to just pay this fee, then you don't have to come into court. And yeah. So it certainly um, tightens it up. Um, We wanted to share one event, which is coming up in, I think, just about a week. Um, It is another screening of Losing Lena, which is spelled L-L-E-N-A. It's going to be at the University of Melbourne. And if you haven't heard of this, Lena was an image taken scanned out of a Playboy in the 1970s. It's a nude woman. And it is also, unfortunately, the standard for image processing and image compression in computer science for literally the decades since then. So Mm -hmm. what's that like? A very long number of years and many too many. So we can talk about the cultural problems there. But excitingly, University of Melbourne, and I can share that this is a bit of an exclusive news update, University of Melbourne will be announcing that they are um, going to be offering a moratorium on the use of this image ongoing for further research. So in computer science and other departments, they will not be using this image any further um, for, you know, tests on algorithmic compression or data sampling. So very exciting. When is that again? That's going to be December the 19th. And if you just pop online and Google Losing Lena, University Uni of, Melbourne. Uni of Melbourne, you'll yeah. find it.
0: Great. Hey, a big thank you to our guests, Associate Professor Tim Miller and Professor Jeannie Patterson this evening. To our podcaster Yazan Saif and Talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy, thank you so much. We've been bite into it. Thanks so much for being with us this year. Have a great evening and a great season's holiday.
2: See you next year. Bye.